Grace and peace to y'all. Uh-oh. What do you mean thumbprint not recognized? It's never a good start when your sermon doesn't let you into it. Because if I have to preach without my notes, we could be here for the rest of the day. I I said something earlier that I I need to uh, explain. I am the Valentine King. Kind of like in uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, Jack is the Pumpkin King. I am the Valentine King. I was born on Valentine's Day. And as a child, this is one of the best days to have your birthday. Because everyone gives gifts to everyone else on Valentine's Day. It's a good holiday. And it involves those conversation hearts, which I, I love those things. I absolutely, I used to use uh, the ones with all the words stamped on them and make sentences that made no sense to anyone, but it made me laugh. And they taste, they taste fantastic. The best ones are not even available this year because the company, Neko company, went bankrupt. And someone else bought the recipe and all that, but they couldn't get tooled up in time for Valentine's Day. So the good ones will be back next year. This year we have to do the second best ones, the Brock's ones. And this is way more than you want to know about Valentine's Day or Conversation Hearts, I know. But it's because I am the Valentine King. I inhabit Valentine's Day. It's all about hearts. The first shape I learned to draw when I was like two was a heart shape. I learned how to make little paper hearts by taking the paper and cutting the little heart shape out and unfolding it. And I'd draw a picture on it and I'd give it to someone and they'd always feel special because I had given them my heart. See, isn't that great? So today we're going to talk about our hearts. How many people here would say that you are basically good people? So yeah, it's almost every hand in here. That's good. That's good. Most people actually would say that about themselves. I am basically a good person. You know why we do that? Because we all compare ourselves to the worst people we can think of. There's a a guy who used to be a pastor. His name's Bill Hybels. You can compare yourself to him now and feel good, but he's still a smart guy. He said a lot of smart things. He, He was talking about someone he met on an airplane once. And he said, I met this person on an airplane, and uh, she said she didn't understand why someone would be a pastor, because people are just basically good people. And he asked her, why do you think you are basically a good person? And she said, well, just look at me. I'm not Hitler. And so Bill, in his lesson, he's like, well, people always compare themselves to the absolute worst. Of course you're not Hitler. But no one ever, when you say, are you a good person? They say, well, I'm a great person. Look at Mother Teresa. How good am I compared to her? Suddenly there's an uncomfortable ripple in the room. I'm a great person. Just compare me to Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. He's like here and I'm like... As long as we continue to compare ourselves to the worst people we can think of, we always feel pretty good about ourselves. I'm going to make you feel bad about yourselves for just a minute. This is the fifth doctrine of the Salvation Army. It says, We believe that our first parents were created in a state of innocency, but by their disobedience they lost their purity and happiness, and that in consequence of their fall, 
All men have become sinners, totally depraved, and as such are justly exposed to the wrath of God. So because of our fall, because we all screw up, we are all totally depraved. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Well, let's look at someone else. Maybe our tradition is a harsh tradition. There was this guy, John Knox. He was the, uh, the Scottish leader of the Reformation about uh, 500 years back. He wrote this into the Confession of Faith for the Church of Scotland. He said, The image of God was utterly defaced in man, and he and his children became by nature hostile to God, slaves to Satan, and servants to sin. Ouch. So these doctrines, kind of like Bill Hybel's story, suggest that we have some kind of a heart problem. A little heart trouble going on in each and every one of our lives. Something at the core of our being that is sick or broken or even evil. How many people here want to volunteer that they are evil? Man, hands don't come up nearly as quick for that one as they did for being a good person. Now there was a modern psalmist who wrote about this too. And he sang this beautiful song that that presents God's perspective on the human condition, this heart problem. This particular artist, he was someone who knew about heart trouble. He died of heart failure when he was only 29 years old. That heart failure was brought on by his use of drugs and alcohol. Well, his use, his abuse... But in his very short career, he penned 35 top 10 hits, 11 of which went to number one on the chart. Isn't that amazing? Because like the ancient psalmists, he tapped into this this thing that people felt that they recognized. And this song that I'm going to bring up is one of them. Now you all saw my sermon title earlier and you all heard this song when I played it early and you were probably wondering what the heck this had to do with anything. And now you know I'm talking about Hank Williams Sr. and his classic psalm Your Cheating Heart. If there were Psalm 152 this would be it. Your Cheating Heart. Now I'm telling you though This is as deeply spiritual a song as anything that King David ever penned. I absolutely promise it. Now, I'm going to bring this home to you by having you sing this for me, okay? I was going to sing it to you, but my voice is not working with the singing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the music and the words on the screen. We're just going to do two verses. It takes about 45 seconds. It's going to be great. And you just sing it. You all know it. You all know this one. Ready? That's enough of that. We're going to... In fact, we're going to just let you sit with that for a minute. Good job, all of you, by the way. Let me tell you about it. Uh, Jeremiah. He was a bullfrog, and he was a really good friend of mine. And I tell that joke every time we talk about Jeremiah. Because we're not talking about that Jeremiah. We're talking about the biblical one, the prophet, the guy who's got a book with his name on it in the Old Testament. He was a hard times prophet. He was a prophet to uh, the nation of Judah, which is what was left of Israel after the Assyrians had come in and taken away about 80% of it. 
Judah's world at the time that Jeremiah was a prophet was just crumbling around them. God had called Jeremiah to bring a message to people who would not listen to him. That's, that's actually how God called him. He said, I'm going to send you to these people, but they're not going to hear a thing you say. Which is not a very encouraging job description. Eventually, Jeremiah would see his homeland invaded and destroyed. He would see the, the few, very few survivors of that invasion picked up, taken away from the place that they had grown, that they was their homeland, and they were ripped out and stuck in other places around the world. They were taken into exile and slavery in all these foreign lands. Well, why did that happen? The short version is that they'd gone their own way. They'd turned their back on God. They'd had a king named Josiah who'd ruled in Judah for 31 years. And for those 31 years, he desperately was trying to turn people back to God the whole time, pointing them back to God, tearing down idols, tearing down places of worship for false gods, and trying to push everyone back. But almost immediately when he died, a guy named Jehoiakim took power. And he started encouraging people, rebuild your idols. Rebuild these other places of worship. Don't bother going to the temple. Don't worry about that God that the previous guy used to follow. Jehoiakim was corrupt. He allied himself with Egypt by becoming a servant to their king. And he ignored all of the warnings of Jeremiah, who God sent to him again and again to say, turn back, turn back. He was a bad ruler leading people into bad places. But, this is important, leaders have to hold some of the blame for who their people become, but it's the individuals who make choices about whether they're going to follow God or not follow God. We choose whether we're going to follow or reject the word of God. This is the message that Jeremiah brought. This is Jeremiah chapter 17. And by the way, If you don't have a Bible open in front of you, I've got a whole bunch of them on that blue card over there. You could open up and you could follow along. I am going to put the words on the screen, but they're very small. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and who turn their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited, salty land. Jeremiah is telling people, look, you've got a heart problem. Your problem is you've decided you don't need God or his help. You're going to do this on your own with the help from your own gods that you made. What good is that? It's like being an abandoned shrub in the desert. Seems simple, right? Pretty simple message. Surely not every person falls in this category, right? Well, let's see what else God has to say. Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. So see, this is encouraging. There must be two groups of people, those who trust in human efforts and those who trust in God. People who make the Lord their hope. One group to burn, one group to save. 
See how easy that is? We just draw that line right there. Those who keep their hearts to themselves, those who give their hearts to God. Does that feel right? Everyone just automatically falls on one side or the other and then nothing else to worry about, right? After all, we're all basically good people, aren't we? Let's take a quick poll. How many people here sin? Yeah, it'd be all of us, right? We, we come back to this verse a lot, Romans 3.23. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But I bet we can all take solace in this. Other people sin more than us, right? I mean, I know I screw up, but I am pretty sure that everyone else messes up more than I do. If you're in the same boat with me that you know that other people screw up more than you, raise your hand. All right, so we've got one honest person in the back and a handful of very uncomfortable looking people in the middle. I'm pretty sure that most of us here believe this to be true, though. After all, we are not Hitler. So, so right there. When surveys are taken, they consistently show that human beings in general believe that other people commit more sins, and we are usually sure that those other people should be punished for them. Those other people. Not me and my sins, of course, because my sins can all be justified. In our culture, this is a particularly pervasive belief. After all, we are rugged individuals. We do not need anyone or anything except ourselves, because that is what we are. We are individuals. Any success that comes to us is because of my own hard work, my own deserving efforts. And anything that goes wrong, any failures are obviously the result of forces outside of my control or maybe even other people conspiring against me. Right? Parents in our culture try to grow their kids up with the right balance of ambition and ability so that they can go out and make something of themselves. Go make something of yourself. And we tell each other, Go seek your fortune. As if prosperity is somehow this birthright that's sitting out there. We just need to look in the right spot or turn over the right rock. And then, bang, there it is. The sleeping princess I get to kiss and become the king of the world. Prince Charming comes and kisses me and takes me away and makes my life perfect. You know what this is? This is all part of how we lie to ourselves. And because we lie to ourselves about what we are, saying, I am a good person, then we all come to this belief that I deserve whatever it is that I want. But that is not what Hank Williams has told us. That is not what John Knox or the Salvation Army's Fifth Doctrine have told us either. They all say something else about us, don't they? Why would they say such a thing? Let's go back to our friend Jeremiah. 17, verse 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I... 
the Lord. Search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. What happens to those who are deceived into thinking that they could make it out there on their own without anyone? What happens to those who rely on the shallow roots that they put down in parched desert sands? They wither. They absolutely wither. There's no hope there. Only those who live lives that are deeply entwined with the Lord can actually flourish. So how do you know? How do you know which one you are? How do you know if you're planted in the desert or at the riverside? I mean, what if you think you're plugged in, but you're just lying to yourself? What if you want to believe, I am drinking from the river of life, but instead you're sucking the sands of sin in the desert of destruction? Fortunately for us, we can look at this passage in Jeremiah and we can take apart how God evaluates us. And that way we can do the same. Because if we know how God evaluates us, we can decide how we evaluate ourselves. But we need to go somewhere a little weird to do that. First, let me change what we're reading to a more literal translation. So this is a more literal translation of Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, examine the heart. I test the kidneys to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. i got to run you through some ancient beliefs. In our modern belief, we put all of our reasoning and emotions and everything up in our head. But to the ancients, the heart, which is at the center of the body, That was the seat of your intellect and your reason. It was where all your thought and all your decisions and all your will came from. They're all in your heart. Your true inner nature lived in your heart. Now your kidneys, your kidneys were the seat of your emotions. They were your innermost and your most private aspects were kept in your kidneys. Your habits all come from your kidneys because what you decided in your heart, in your intellect, steered you one way or another and your reactions would come out of those emotions, out of your kidneys. That's your response. It's not where you felt your emotions, by the way. You felt your emotions in your gut, in your intestines, in your bowels, literally. If you felt really strongly about something, you would say, oh, my bowels move for that. If you were deeply in love with someone and you wanted to give them a beautiful Valentine's card, say, you make my bowels move. (laughs) But the emotion behind that feeling, behind that gut movement, that comes from your kidneys and your kidneys are trained by your heart. I told you it was weird. So what is this? telling us it tells us that God searches our reasoning and he tests our reactions why why does he do that well it says right here he says to give to each according to their way now the word way means path or journey 
the pathway or the pattern that you choose to put your life on. It's where you're trying to go. It's where your efforts are leading you. According to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that if we seek God's will in all we do, He will show us which path to take. Y'all with me? That piece of wisdom came right out of something from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6 says, Obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and fearing Him. Follow His path. So what we're being told is, I, the Lord, examine the reasoning. I test the reactions to give to each according to whether they're seeking my will and following my commands. According to what their actions deserve. The word actions here comes from a Hebrew word that means endeavors. It's what you do or try to do. Deuteronomy, oh, I did that one. Sorry, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 11 says, Even children are known by the way they act, whether their conduct is pure and whether it is right. No one actually gets mad at a baby crying on an airplane because it's a baby, it doesn't know any better. Everyone gets mad at a six-year-old crying on an airplane because they are six, they're old enough to know better. Not that I've had any personal experience with that. Now there's a problem here though. Everyone is known by how they act, whether their conduct is pure and whether it's right. But the problem is we're not good people. I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. We are not good people. We have deceitful, cheating hearts. And we don't actually want to change that. It's uncomfortable. I'd rather just be the way I am. Why would I ever want to try and be something more? It's so much easier just to be selfish and try to get what's mine, right? Remember what Jeremiah 17, 9 said? He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. I'm going to nitpick the word here because the Hebrew behind that word wicked actually means something closer to incurable. It's sick. Our hearts are deceitful and incurable. And this is not the first time that Jeremiah has faced or addressed this problem. Back in chapter 8, he laid out the facts to the people. said, look, you guys abandoned God. You put your trust in your own ways. You put your trust in your own gods that you created. He pointed out that this is leading them down that pathway to destruction. And so the people, they cried out. Because there's a prophet who's saying, God is going to wipe you out. He's going to let your enemies take you because you're praying to trees and not to him. He's going to let you wait and see if the trees actually help. And in Jeremiah 8.19, Jeremiah says, Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem, the people ask? Is her king no longer there? They've done wrong. They cry out, We've done wrong. They expect to be saved. But they don't do anything else. This is all they do. They just cry about it and then go on. They keep doing exactly what they've been doing. They don't change a thing. 
They keep praying to the trees. And looking at this sick, broken behavior, Jeremiah questions them. Question. Thank you. Jeremiah says, Is there no medicine in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? Gilead was a part of Israel. It was known for this aromatic resin that was used as a healing ointment. Think of uh, Vicks Vapor Rub. Very strong smelling stuff. People thought it fixed everything. They had doctors who trained in Gilead. And people who were sick, they would go there or they would hire someone from there to come to them, to treat them, to tell them what to do. And then they would do what those doctors said and they would get better. But if they were sick and they didn't seek out any care, then they would stay sick. What happens if you stay sick for long enough? You die. They knew they needed to cry out to God. But they didn't actually want to turn back to him. So they tried just treating the symptoms. Oh God, oh, we're miserable. Won't you come and save us? So that we can continue to disobey you and go on our own path and forget about your ways. They wept because he wouldn't save them. But it wasn't that he wouldn't save them. It's that they wouldn't accept it and do what was required. See, salvation is free. Everyone reach into your wallet and take out nothing. That's how much salvation costs. It's free. Absolutely free. God's grace is always free. His forgiveness is right there. It's like a stream of water flowing through the desert. But if you choose to keep your tree away from the water that God has provided, don't expect that that water is going to do you any good. If your roots are sunk in nothing but wasteland soil, and not in the life-giving stream. You're going to wither. Jeremiah brought us this message from God that God is checking out our hearts and our kidneys. He's grading us on our attitude and our effort. Salvation is free, but once God puts us on that path, we have to take the journey. If we turn away from Him, that's not on God. That's on us. If God says, this is the path, here, look, there's trail markers right here. They're shaped like crosses, so you can follow them. They're easy to see. Look, here's one here. There's another one a quarter of a mile up, another one a quarter of a mile past that. Just stay on this road, and you will get to where you can go. And you say, yes, sir, and you turn and step off the cliff. Whose fault is that? This is the ninth doctrine of the Salvation Army. Oh, I've got THQ visitors and I've brought up two doctrines. I feel so proud. This is the ninth doctrine of the Salvation Army. We believe that continuance in a state of salvation depends on continued obedient faith in Christ. Depends on obedient faith in Christ. We have to do something. Now where do we get that crazy idea from? I'll tell you. He was this guy, this first century rabbi. Maybe you've heard him. His name was Jesus. If you just look at one passage from his teaching, just look at John chapter 14 and 15. In fact, I'm not even going to put it up on the wall. You need to go look this up for yourself. But I'm going to tell you a few of the things that he says. John 14 and 15. In fact, John verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commandments. 
couple verses later, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, All who love me will do what I say, and then my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. A couple verses farther on, John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Stay on the path. Two verses later, John fifteen twelve, Jesus says, This is my commandment, love each other the same way I have loved you. Stay on the path. Verse 17, he says, this is my command, love each other. Are you getting the picture here? Between these two chapters, he says, you have to do what I say. What I say is care about each other. He says it in more than seven different ways. I just picked some of the easy ones. And I got to tell you, John 14 and 15 is not all that Jesus taught. But it sums it all up. You can go look in all those other Gospels and they all say the same thing. Jesus says, hey, do what I tell you. What I tell you is love each other. Love here, by the way, is the word agape. It means a willful choice to act in the interests of others. It means you choose to care about someone regardless of whether they care about you or not. God grades on attitude and effort. A true attitude of love results in efforts to demonstrate or live out that love. If your attitude is, I'm going to do what God says, I'm going to follow his path, then you need to actually walk on his path. Don't jump off the cliff. Now Jesus talks about sending us the Holy Spirit as a guide that we can trust. Kind of like a heart transplant, as it were. If our hearts are deceitful and wicked, we need something that's going to lead us in the right direction. The Apostle Paul actually talks about this as becoming a new creation. So, 2 Corinthians verses 5, 14. He says, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. The old me with the bad heart, that one's dead, it's gone. That heart trouble killed me. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. What does that mean? Fortunately, he explains. That means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. A new life. A new heart. A heart that's focused on following the commands of Jesus. One that we we work to change our attitude in. Because as our attitude changes, our reactions change. We become more inclined to stay on the path and less inclined to turn around and wander off our own way. Like Jeremiah said, trees on a riverbank keep producing fruit no matter what conditions they face so long as they continue to drink from the river. Our transformation is not something that we do on our own. God, through Jesus, provides us the Holy Spirit as a partner, an advisor. The Holy Spirit is that river of life that we need to tap into. It flows right through the desert of your cheating heart, of my cheating heart. It 
helps us to become something more than we were. The Holy Spirit helps us to produce fruit. Galatians 5.22 says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love this. There's no law against these things. You can love other people as much as you want. You can be patient as much as you want. It's okay. You can be kind and good. By the way, it's random acts of kindness day. Did you know that? When you leave here, go be kind to people just because you can. It's like tapping into God's spirit. And we're here to help each other with this as well. Just a couple of sentences later in this same letter, Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. He's essentially saying, please don't take a Bible and nail someone on the head with it. You sinners. No, gently, humbly. You know what? My heart's bad too. Let me tell you how... God has steered me in the right direction. Gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. And then this, one of my absolute favorite verses. If you think you're too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. think you're too important to help someone you are fooling yourself you're listening to your cheating heart let me close with one last verse we started with a modern psalmist so we're going to end with an ancient one this is uh, King David recognizing that he needed help transforming his attitude so that he would make the right efforts he prayed this line in Psalm 51 he said create in me a clean heart O God and renew a loyal spirit within me Bring me back to you, God. Root me in that river. I hope that we all make this our prayer as we head into the rest of our day and then from the rest of our day on into the rest of our lives. Sorry. This is the point at which my voice decides to fail completely. God has provided for each and every one of us a river that we can root into, that we can thrive on the banks of, a place that we can stretch out our branches, grow green leaves, grow fruit, produce that love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But we got to root into it. Now I'm going to play a couple of songs to round us out. And... I would love you to sing these and inhabit the words and know that this is true in your life. If this is a time that you need to come and pray, we have these places of prayer behind me. They are always available. Come and talk to God. Grab someone if you need someone to come and help guide you. But just go talk to God. Say, look, I want to be rooted in to the river. Show me the mileposts. Don't let me go the wrong way. Are you with me? Then if you're someone who is capable, let me ask you to stand while we sing. <clears throat>